Did you know? In the 2018 Freedom House report, 26 countries out of the 65 surveyed by the report showed a deteriorating level of internet freedom. The report also found that governments in 18 countries increased surveillance, often rejecting independent oversight and weakening encryption to gain unfettered access to data. This is happening in a climate of increased anxiety around terrorist use of the internet. Between 2001 and 2018, at least 140 governments around the world introduced new counter-terrorism legislation. This is Tech Against Terrorism. I'm Jacob Bernstein. And I'm Flora Deverell. In this episode, we're analysing one of our main goals here at Tech Against Terrorism, how we fight terrorism while protecting human rights. It can be a tough balance. Where do the limits lie for freedom of speech and privacy? Who decides what might incite violence or what constitutes support or glorification of terrorism? Where is the line when deciding which speech to take action on online? As we discussed in our first podcast episode, terrorists are skilled at exploiting tech platforms of all types and sizes. So the threat we're faced with is very real. As such, it is understandable that both governments and tech companies alike want to take action to combat the problem. However, if we take drastic action and do not build in human rights safeguards, Do we not risk the openness and vibrancy of the internet? And in one way, could you not argue that by allowing for terrorist acts to influence policies that lead to restrictions of human rights and freedom of speech, we, to some extent, let terrorists win? There is reason for concern in this regard. We are seeing counter-terrorism and broad national security claims being used as justification for measures that restrict online freedoms. In Freedom House's Freedom of the Net report for 2018, anti-terrorism measures were directly cited as one factor that is driving what the report called the rise of digital authoritarianism. Increasingly, legislative measures to tackle online terrorist content in Europe have also come under fire. In 2017, Germany took action in cracking down on speech considered potentially illegal under German law by introducing a law called NetsDG. This law forces any internet platform with more than 2 million users to more expeditiously delete illegal content, including terrorist material, or face hefty fines. It is left up to platforms to adjudicate on what is illegal under German law. Although it was criticized by various human rights groups for potentially leading to censorship in the face of sanctions, the law was passed. Similarly, the European Commission is currently working on a draft law to tackle online terrorist content that should it come into effect, would force tech companies to remove terrorist content within one hour following removal orders from member states. The draft version of the bill was criticised by the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression, as well as the EU's own fundamental rights agency, due to concerns that the regulation could lead to the removal of potentially legal content. But not only governments are in the crosshairs of this debate. Tech companies are often scrutinised when failing to take action on online terrorist content but have also faced criticism for some of their countermeasures. Facebook, for example, was criticised by the UN Special Rapporteur on Counterterrorism and Human Rights for using a working definition of terrorism to police content that, according to the Special Rapporteur, is too broad. YouTube, too, came under fire when they removed a large number of videos recorded in Syria under their counterterrorism policies, which human rights groups say led to the removal of war crime evidence, which in turn might make it harder to hold terrorists to account in a court of law. Fighting the very real threat of terrorism and exploitation of the online space without impinging on human rights is something that all sectors, both public and private, grapple with. But how can we actually ensure that our response to terrorism online is effective while safeguarding a free and open internet. Joining us now, we have Emma Lanzo, 
director of the Free Expression Project at the Centre for Democracy and Technology. Emma, it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you for coming. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. So uh, we just wanted to start, if you could briefly talk about what the Center for Democracy and Technology does. Sure. Um, so we're a nonprofit public interest advocacy organization based in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. And we fight for civil liberties and human rights in Internet law and technology policy, um, you know, in the U.S., in Europe and around the world. And what specific threats with regards to freedom of expression online do you see as the most pressing when it comes to online counterterrorism measures? Uh, One of the main focuses that we've seen um, in the past couple of years around counterterrorism and the internet has really focused in on online content as a big piece of that. Um, Concerns about radicalization, you know, glorification and uh, inspiring of copycat attacks um, and and just a sort of legitimizing of uh, terrorist organizations ideologies online you know it's understanding that that the online content element is um, very concerning to policymakers to tech companies and to the public but the minute we start talking about online content regulation um, a lot of uh, kind of consistent free expression issues come up. Um, There are all sorts of questions around definitions. Um, What exactly is the prohibited kind of content? How narrow is that definition? Is it focused only on things that truly incite violence um, or, you know, actively call for the commission of terrorist attacks? Or are we talking about a kind of more general, you know, commentary that treads the line between uh, terrorist propaganda and political speech? How much are we actually talking about um, commentary that is merely critical of another government um, or, you know, of the, the ruling party in a particular country? So questions about scope of definition will always uh, especially be very challenging on global content platforms where there are so many different languages, cultural contexts, um, you know, historical backgrounds, regional differences in what is acceptable and unacceptable speech. Uh, But we also see a lot of focus on, I think, a kind of maybe a misplaced goal of completely eradicating certain kinds of content from the the web. Um, I think it's important to kind of remember when we're talking about online content regulation, whether it's applying laws against particular kinds of speech or applying a company's content policy, there's basically no chance that any of these laws or policies will ever capture, you know, every piece of violating content that there is, because there is simply such an enormous scale of content and applying these rules at that scale is error prone. Material that violates the rules will stay up. Material that doesn't violate the rules will improperly come down. Um, and that that is going to be a persistent dynamic of all of these questions around online content. Um, but a lot of the policy debates that we are part of these days seem to hold as the goal, you know, the the complete and comprehensive removal of content um, in a way that I think is just technically infeasible. Yes, exactly. So do you think that this phenomenon sheds light on our focus on content removal and how perhaps it's to an extent inefficient as it just serves to simply push some terrorist and violent extremist groups onto smaller platforms with less capacity to respond? What alternatives do we have to this current focus? Right. I think certainly looking at the question of online content and its role is part of the question. But obviously, you know, working to counter terrorism in our societies is a much bigger question than 
the the kind of laser focus on social media content and messaging apps um, that that we've seen. You know, a lot of research around what actually leads people to um, become radicalized or to actually commit an act of violence um, in their communities. You know, has to do with a number of different offline circumstances, um, you know, what resources they have, uh, you know, do they feel marginalized or, um, you know, not part of the community or, or disserved by the government that they're fighting against. Uh, so I think looking at truly what are all of the online and offline um, factors that that lead to the Commission of Violent Acts is, is the more appropriate um, broad scale focus. As far as the online content piece goes, one of the big questions um, that's been debated in the Christchurch call, in the uh, Global Internet Forum to Counter Terrorism, um, and a lot of different national and regional uh, legislative efforts has been this question of information sharing between governments and companies. Um, this is, again, it's, a, it's an area where the focus as a part of the policy solution makes a lot of sense. Um, there is certainly intelligence that governments will have that tech companies do not have. Tech companies have the best you know information of anybody about what is happening on their platform specifically and there's certainly ways that sharing some kinds of information between companies and governments could help both parties have a much more full picture of what is going on and how these different systems are being leveraged to do things like for example uh, air the the video of the shootings in the mosques in christchurch um, but there are also a lot of big questions around information sharing between governments and companies. And in particular, there are a lot of laws that already um, affect and and restrict what information can be shared and, and what kinds of legal demands uh, governments could make or what kinds of information companies could voluntarily share. And we have to keep in mind that there is an enormous question of individual privacy underlying all of this information sharing as well. Particularly in the United States, we have a, a history of authorities for investigation of terrorist activity um, being used much more broadly uh, than they were ever designed or intended to, um, to, you know, to conduct much broader kinds of surveillance of uh, individuals and populations. Um, so those sorts of questions, I think, will always underlie these, these discussions of information sharing between governments and companies. And with regards to uh, human rights, uh, companies are often criticized when they get it wrong, when they remove uh, potentially legal content. However, at the same time, they have both commercial pressure and pressure from governments to take action. Um, what do you think tech companies are getting right uh, with regards to dealing with this problem in a human rights compliant manner? And what do you think that they could improve? So there have definitely been improvements over the past few years as far as some of the major tech companies providing more transparency about how they enforce their own terms of service and content policies in general. Both Facebook and YouTube have begun issuing reports around how they enforce their, their content guidelines, um, which is important because, you know, prior to a few years ago, there was no kind of consistent information about how are they applying not only their policies around terrorist content, but hate speech, harassment, um, nudity, and sexual content. And those questions are, you know, a big part of evaluating these these concerns about what is actually happening in our information environment and how do these companies' policies affect that. Um, so I think it is good to see more of a focus on 
being transparent about, you know, what are the standards that they apply? How do they define what they consider to be terrorist propaganda? Um, but there is still a lot more uh, that groups like CDT would like to see from the companies as far as transparency. One of the big uh, focuses that we've had the past couple of years has been on looking for more information about um, initiatives of cross-platform content regulation. Um, a, a key example of this is the uh, the hash database that companies who participate in the Global Internet Forum to Counter Terrorism um, share with each other. So this is a database of essentially fingerprints of files. They could be images or videos that one of the participating companies has decided, you know, meets their standards of impermissible terrorist content for their, their platform. They share this fingerprint uh, with the other companies so that those companies can look at any kind of material that gets uploaded to their own systems, see if there's a match, and then potentially take action against that content. Um, you know, either decide to, to remove it, to shut down someone's account, to suppress it in rankings or recommendations. Um, so it's a way for the companies to sort of share intelligence with each other about especially kind of novel examples of particularly heinous material like a video of a beheading or a video of, of a shooting spree. So it's, it's an understandable tool that they want to, you know, to have access to. Um, but from the outside, nobody knows what's in this database. Um, you know, nobody external to the companies has any visibility into the content that ends up into the database. It has some tens of thousands of hashes in it at this point, I believe. Uh, and and it's not entirely, you know, it's not clear at all to to people outside of the companies if the company's assessment of what amounts to this sort of worst of the worst terrorist violence content is truly that, or if there have been any mistakes in classification, or if there are any kind of trends or patterns of potential bias, or just a, an over broad focus on terrorism in a particular region or from a particular set of groups. You know, there's really nothing for any of us to to evaluate this sort of tool and say, does that does that seem effective? Does that seem like it's it's worth the sort of potential risks to free expression um, of having a centralized database that can function as a blacklist of content? There's really no way for people outside of the system to evaluate that. So more information about those kinds of initiatives. And also, as always, with any content moderation system, we know that errors will happen. Errors, you know, false positives and false negatives in either way. Companies need to have more resources dedicated to what to do about those errors, having appeals mechanisms in place, having ways for people to get explanations as to why the content that they flagged wasn't removed. Um, you know, there's, there's that missing feedback loop with users about interacting with content moderation systems um, that can lead them to feel completely arbitrary uh, from the user perspective. So. You know, that's, I'll stop there with my, my list of things I'd like to see them improve on, but transparency and um, kind of due process and appeals mechanisms, I think are always going to be areas for improvement for content moderation. So how can we support smaller tech companies in tackling terrorist use of their platforms whilst respecting human rights? And can civil society and governments play a role in that? So I think there are definitely um, some initiatives that are already focused on trying to help uh, smaller companies respond to 
terrorist use of their platform. Um, the the GIF-CT uh, that I've mentioned before um, certainly has programs along those lines. The idea is to essentially make tools and techniques and, and ideas about what good policies and procedures are um, that the big companies have been able to develop and devote the resources to implementing, make all of that information available to smaller companies so that they can um, you know, take advantage of what's already been worked out by the big players um, and see if it works for their systems. I would caution that Though that you know, as we've seen with a variety of different kinds of content moderation challenges, um, what works well for one platform doesn't always translate over to another platform. That could be a sheer resources question. If your model for doing content moderation is having 10,000 uh, people reviewing the content that gets flagged by your users, that's basically impossible for most other companies to implement. Um, but it can also affect things like how granular is your policy uh, prohibiting something like terrorist propaganda. The more granular and nuanced your policy is, on the one hand, the more opportunity you have for ensuring that you're not doing overbroad takedown, that you're leaving room for reporting and educational uses and counter speech. Um, but the more nuanced your policy, the more resources it takes to implement it, which is why I think you see a lot of platforms taking more of a, a zero tolerance sort of approach. We're saying, you know, if we think you're associated with a terrorist organization, you just can't speak on our platform at all. Um, obviously, that's a, a very harsh kind of decision from a freedom of expression standpoint. But it is something that companies have to think about as they they look at what are the resources that they have to devote um, to doing something like content moderation. So obviously, we've been talking a lot about uh, content sharing platforms, but uh, that are that are publicly available for, for the world to see, which is where most terrorists want to share their propaganda. But obviously, we've seen terrorists move to encrypted uh, platforms, uh, but also using other types of technologies to further their aims, including technologies such as fintech and and other kinds of encrypted messaging apps. What specific threats, Emma, do you see with regards to this latter category and, and fighting terrorist use of those uh, technologies? So I think one of the big questions for looking at terrorist use of all of these different types of technologies, whether it's fintech or um, messaging platforms or public social media platforms, is that while understanding and addressing terrorist use of these platforms is very important, the fact that they are actually general purpose platforms is also extremely important. Um, we see a lot of proposals around sort of restricting the ability of, of platforms to use encrypted communications because of concerns that law enforcement and intelligence agencies won't be able to gain access to information that they need. But every proposal that we see around, um, you know, implementing backdoors into encryption carries with it this basically this fundamental approach of wanting to make everyone's communications more vulnerable to all sorts of malicious actors and government surveillance for the goal of identifying and, um, and stopping uh, terrorist activity. And I think that that trade-off vastly undercounts the importance of privacy-enhancing technologies like encryption for everybody. You know, we have, unfortunately, terrorists use the infrastructure that is available to everyone else, right? They use the roads, they use the sidewalks, they use the electric grid. Um, we can't design all of these systems to be completely impervious to terrorist use because that will almost certainly make them 
completely useless to everybody else as well. So you were talking about the importance of transparency earlier. And obviously, transparency reports are important in showing what types of requests governments are making of tech platforms. And recently, there's an increasing discussion around transparency reports for governments. What do you think about this? I would love to see more transparency reports from governments about how they are pursuing content removal and access to user data um, from tech platforms across the globe. One of the big areas we have focused on at CDT is looking at these uh, programs that are increasingly common in Europe called internet referral units. Um, These are, are interesting programs from a a kind of rule of law perspective, because they are typically systems by which a law enforcement agency, um, I think the the UK Metropolitan Police was the the first to innovate this approach. Um, Law enforcement from a country contacts a tech platform to say, you are hosting content that we, the law enforcement agency, believes violates your terms of service and you should remove it. Um, This is a strange sort of dynamic because you have on the one hand government action of identifying content that they would clearly like to see removed but the standard that is ultimately applied to that content is the company's privately developed terms of service. Um, One of the big concerns that I as a, a human rights advocate have with that is it's not clear who is held accountable and how in determinations around what happens to that speech or what happens to that person's account. If there is a mistake or if there is a just misinterpretation of what the person was saying, do they have recourse against the government for having targeted their speech to be removed from a platform? It wasn't the government making the ultimate call on that, so possibly not. What kind of compulsion could or should they be able to have against the tech platform to say, you have to restore my content. Um, you know, there's that's a kind of open legal question um, in a lot of jurisdictions of whether you can ever compel a social media company to, to carry your content. But one thing that these sorts of programs like internet referral units do is, is lead to a fair amount of content takedown that was sort of initiated by government, but that's never necessarily reported as such or or tracked as such. Um, and it makes it hard for the public to understand what is the government doing, if anything, to seek removal of this sort of content from platforms, especially if they're not going through traditional legal process. Um, so that's just one area where I think more clear and consistent reporting from governments about how they are using not only the tools directly available to them under the law and under the the constitutions of their country, um, but also these other sorts of initiatives to pursue content removal. Um, There's a lot of it that's happening that is not transparent at this point, that's fairly opaque. Um, And that's, uh, that's a big problem for just overall legitimacy and accountability of government activity in this sphere. And Emma, you mentioned infrastructure uh, before, which made me think uh, that in the past year, we've seen a lot of internet infrastructure companies being dragged into this debate as well, as uh, directly as a result of terrorist attacks. So after the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting, we had Gab being taken offline when they their uh, hosting provider suspended their services to the platform. After the El Paso shooting, we saw that Cloudflare removed protection from HN, which made the, the platform go offline. So... Uh, disregarding those specific cases and whether that was right or wrong, it's it's clear that this is a very unregulated space and, and how in the sense that 
what role is there for for different kinds of tech companies to hold each other accountable when they are seen to not sort of live up live up to a certain standard with regards to to terrorist exploitation of their platforms? What what sort of concerns do you have, and what do you think is needed to improve on this, frankly, slightly chaotic situation? <laughs> Uh, I think chaotic is a, a good word for it. Um, I think what those examples really help to illustrate is ultimately how vulnerable all of our speech is to the decisions of different technical intermediaries about whether they will host or provide service to our speech. Um, if I want to say anything online, uh, if I want to post on social media or send an email um, or really do anything, I am dependent on a whole series of different kinds of technical intermediaries, not just the, you know, kind of the service that I'm directly interfacing with, uh, where I have the account that I'm posting to, but their domain name provider, the, you know, part of the cloud where they have server space, the access provider, entities like Cloudflare that make it possible to run a website by protecting it from from DDoS attacks. There are so many different potential weak links in this chain. Um, and I think what we're seeing is more kinds of advocacy campaigns getting sophisticated about targeting those different links. Uh, you know, it's, it's understandable that um, groups will want to pressure a company like Cloudflare about, you know, what are your values as a company and, and how does that extend to who you decide to, to do service with. But I would argue that being willing to host and enable the, um, you know, the expression of speech and opinion uh, and ideas of all kinds is itself a value proposition. It's, uh, it's maybe not always the most popular value proposition these days, but it is crucial that we all have access to content-neutral infrastructure hosts and providers, um, because otherwise we end up in this situation where not only, instead of the internet enabling speech without gatekeepers, we have half a dozen, 20 different gatekeepers that we have to satisfy before we can ever get a, a message across. And, and the moment, you know, somebody says something controversial, they get shut down because their financial payment processor decides to cut them off or, you know, or some other um, intermediary decides to, you know, to cut that, that link. I think one of the biggest concerns that I have around um, the role of infrastructure is seeing more and more legislative proposals that actually look to try to draw more types of infrastructure providers into the content regulation game. Um, I think that that's a big mistake and raises a number of fundamental rights issues uh, and that anytime we're talking about um, responsibilities to remove illegal content, those should really be focused on the the kind of proximate host of that content, the, the entity that has the relationship with the user who posted it um, and has control over that content, rather than see content regulation shift into, you know, network level filtering or other kinds of content restriction that move deeper into the infrastructure of the internet. So going forward, what do you think can be done about this? So are there any particular initiatives that your organization values in dealing with the issue of protecting human rights while fighting terrorist use of the internet? CDT has supported a number of initiatives over the years around increasing transparency and uh, due process protections in how companies respond to um, problematic content online. One example of this is uh, a document called the Santa Clara Principles, um, 
these are a, a set of principles around providing, wanting to see companies provide numbers, notice, and appeal opportunities uh, to their users in their content moderation processes. Um, you know, that that's an initiative that had been fairly heavily focused on a couple of the major US-based social media companies, but we're continuing to look at expanding those um, and really turning them into something that has a, a global resonance at, because we know that people around the world have a lot of questions and a lot of concerns about how these companies approach doing content moderation. Emma, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was It was great having you. Oh, it was great to be here. Thank you. Joining us now is Dr. Christina Hushti Orban, Senior Legal Advisor to the UN Special Rapporteur on Counterterrorism and Human Rights. First of all, Christina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to join you. And Christina, for those who don't know, uh, could you briefly outline what the role of the UN Special Rapporteur is and why does the UN think that counterterrorism and human rights together is an area that deserves special attention? The Special Rapporteur on Counterterrorism and Human Rights is an independent expert appointed by the United Nations Human Rights Council and as such is part of the United Nations Special Procedure Mechanisms. The task of the Special Rapporteur's mandate is to examine the intersection between the promotion and protection of human rights and fundamental freedoms and measures aimed at preventing and countering terrorism and violent extremism. And in this role, the mandate advises states, United Nations entities and other stakeholders, including increasingly businesses, on ways in which they can improve their compliance with international human rights uh, norms and standards. The main reason why United Nations member states, as well as Human Rights Council members, thought that this is an uh, important area to explore is because there are many studies and there is considerable evidence that points towards the importance of human rights and rule of law as a tool in counterterrorism and um, evidence pointing towards effective counterterrorism requiring respect and protection of human rights and the rule of law. There is a lot of evidence that indicates that actually violations of human rights and undermining of the rule of law act as conditions conducive to violence, including terrorism and violent extremism. And the mandate operates both as a human rights mechanism and as part as the United Nations counterterrorism architecture and as such is the only United Nations entity that works at the intersection of counterterrorism and the protection of promotion of human rights. You touched briefly on the role of member states there. Many governments have recently proposed or introduced laws that seek to curb online terrorist content. What are your thoughts about these recent regulatory approaches? Yes, there has been a very clear tendency on part of of member states and even some regional organizations such as the European Union to introduce regulation aimed at preventing and countering terrorist and violent extremist content online. The mandate has looked into a number of these initiatives and has assessed the the human rights implications of uh, the relevant uh, laws and measures. And in our view, there are a number of human rights concerns. On the one hand, of course, the mandate thinks that 
having a proper framework, including uh, a regional or even a transnational framework to address terrorist and violent extremist content online is extremely important. However, we also feel very strongly that this has to be done in a way that is human rights compliant, in a way that does not unnecessarily or unduly undermine freedom of expression, freedom of opinion, freedom of association, the right to access to information and so on. The legislation that we have looked at, the uh, legislative initiatives that we have looked at, seem to put considerable onus in this respect on technology companies. And we think this is a kind of role that many technology companies, especially the smaller ones, are not fully equipped to take on. Uh, we also think that states should be very careful in not outsourcing their human rights obligations, as well as their duties relating to law enforcement to technology companies. And this, this would sum up some of the concerns that the mandate has expressed in this regard. And the Special Rapporteur's uh, most recent report cites the use of overly broad definitions of terrorism and violent extremism as a threat to freedom of expression and human rights. Can you explain how this might constitute a threat to freedom of expression online? Considerations around uh, definitions of terrorism actually constitute a leitmotif of our work. Efficient and, and again, human rights compliant and rule of law compliant counterterrorism action rests on a contained and well-defined and sufficiently precise and narrow definition of terrorism. However, at the international level, even though there are 19 different treaties and covenants that have been adopted under the umbrella of the United Nations and that are related to terrorism, there is no internationally accepted comprehensive definition of terrorism at this point. There is a draft comprehensive convention that the United Nations uh, started negotiating, but that is unlikely to be uh, adopted anytime soon. And there are some other definitions that can be considered authoritative, but are not necessarily binding. There is a definition that has been developed by the United Nations Security Council in their resolution 1566. There is also a model definition that has been developed by the mandate of the Special Rapporteur on the basis of broad consultations with uh, states, civil society, academia, think tanks, and, and other relevant stakeholders. Uh, however, when we look at definitions of terrorism and terrorism-related offenses at the domestic level, it seems that these definitions developed by UN entities have been taken as a de minimis standard. If we look at the definition either by the Security Council or by the mandate of the Special Rapporteur, this definition requires that terrorism is interpreted as an action that constitutes a serious offense as defined in national law or as defined under relevant international uh, covenants that is intended to cause death or serious bodily injury 
or involves lethal or serious physical violence or the intentional taking of hostages. And very importantly, an action that is done with the intention of provoking a state of terror in the general public or a segment of the general public or an action that is aimed at unlawfully compelling a government or an international organization to do something or to abstain from doing something. However, states, when they define terrorism and terrorism-related offenses frequently, they end up equating political protest, activities of human rights defenders or activities of uh, political opposition to terrorism as well. And even in a number of established democracies who would not target political opposition or human rights defenders under counterterrorism legislation, we see overly broad definitions that would encompass expression, academic expression, journalistic expression as terrorism, which we find extremely concerning. And uh, this is something that also trickles down when it comes to action by technology companies who have the task to comply with the laws of the states in which they operate. And many of these um, social media platforms and um, other companies operate in numerous jurisdictions, some of them in more than 100 countries. So they have to, to comply with extremely diverse legislation, much of which extremely broad and not compliant with international law standards or human rights standards. Tech companies have actually been stepping into this role, haven't they, in terms of creating their own definitions? And, and I think Facebook unveiled their working definition of terrorism last year. What are your views on, on tech companies assuming this role? In principle, I would say that it should be up to the states to define terrorism and for businesses to comply with the definitions that exist in the jurisdictions where they operate. This, however, uh, does not seem to be a feasible option for, for the reasons that I just mentioned, for the reason that um, these companies generally operate in numerous jurisdictions, in numerous states, which have very diverse uh, and not necessarily compatible definitions of terrorism. For this reason, it is understandable why technology companies seek to establish some level of certainty by um, coming up with their own definitions of uh, terrorism. In this sense, of course, our suggestion would be for these companies to adopt internationally recognized, if not internationally binding definitions. And we recommend that they work either with the definition adopted by the Security Council or the definition uh, adopted by the mandate of the United Nations Special Rapporteur. The technology companies who developed the definition themselves, and you, you mentioned Facebook, for example, do not define terrorism as an act. They have a definition of terrorism entities. And they first came up with a definition, as you mentioned, last year, which they have recently updated. The definition that they developed last year was an extremely broad one, where any non-state actor that used uh, violence in a premeditated manner was deemed to be a terrorist organization. This is also something that the uh, Special Rapporteur has taken up and we have been 
engaged with uh, Facebook to to follow up on their definition of terrorist uh, terrorist entities and dangerous organizations and credit where credit is due we found Facebook to be uh, very responsive to the concerns expressed by the mandate of the special rapporteur I have recently seen that they have updated their definition of, of uh, terrorism in the meantime now they have established it seems more buckets uh, more categories of dangerous organizations with terrorist organizations being a subcategory of course if one looks at their updated definition it is clear that they did consult the definition of the the security council possibly even the definition provided by the mandate of the special rapporteur and their current definition compared with the previous one is much improved but from the point of view of a lawyer it is still insufficiently precise and it is still um, washing together different elements of the definition of terrorism um, other technology companies um, other than facebook some of them do not have a publicly available definition of terrorism but we know that they are working with uh, an internal definition which raises problems of uh, transparency, of course. And again, others decided to follow the United Nations sanctions list and prohibit uh, entities that are on that sanctions list from using their platform or their services. So uh, companies seem to have very diverse approaches to this issue. and. We understand that they are facing very serious challenges. On the one hand, because they are under a lot of pressure on part of numerous governments to efficiently address terrorist and violent extremist content on their platforms, but without being provided a very clear framework and a framework that is internationally valid because with um, the fragmentation of counterterrorism legislation uh, they are facing a challenge for, for which I cannot think of an obvious solution. I think that that last point is is, is really good. Uh, so clearly this is a very complicated issue and, and tech companies uh, will get it wrong sometimes. But how do you think we can build in accountability for both tech platforms and governments in ensuring that human rights are being adequately upheld? For me, when we're starting a discussion around um, the human rights obligations and responsibilities when it comes to online content, one thing that we have to keep in mind is that the primary duty bearers when it comes to uh, protection and promotion and safeguarding of human rights are states. States are the ones that are bound under a series of uh, international treaties and who have the obligation to make sure the rights of all persons within their jurisdiction are safeguarded. This also requires for them to establish an effective legal framework and effective procedures to ensure that third parties, including businesses, also respect human rights and do not unduly interfere with them. When it comes to businesses, of course, social media platforms such as Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and, and others, they have a very significant influence on how 
people in, in this digital age exercise some of their human rights. They have a significant influence on freedom of expression, influence on how we have access to information, on political interest processes, on political speech, as well as on our right to privacy and interlinked rights. And this influence should not be underestimated and the responsibilities, the human rights responsibilities of these actors should be equivalent to that level of influence. Of course, under human rights law, businesses at this point do not have formally binding human rights obligations. Their responsibilities are governed by a so-called soft law, a non-binding framework called the United Nations Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights. And at this point, there is an intergovernmental working group that is in the process of producing a binding, a legally binding document to govern business responsibilities. The um, United Nations Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights even though non-binding is authoritative, it has been adopted by the United Nations Human Rights Council, and it uh, also has been accepted and is being implemented by a number of uh, business enterprises. And we think that for companies, it is important to make sure that their activities are in line with the guiding principles and other relevant uh, human rights standards. However, in order to make sure that uh, online content regulation and the regulation of people's access to online services is done in a human rights compliant manner that is respectful of freedom of expression, that is respectful of privacy, freedom of opinion, and so on, uh, we need meaningful cooperation between governments and between tech companies. And this is a cooperation that needs to happen at the international level. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, there are no viable domestic solutions having in mind the transnational nature of the activities and of the reach of internet platforms. And this requires political will on part of United Nations member states, as well as on part of companies. And there are a number of initiatives that are aimed at um, furthering such cooperation and improving standards. Tech Against Terrorism is one of those. The Global Internet Forum on Countering Terrorism is another. Uh, these initiatives are, in a way, at an initial phase. And I think it remains to be seen how effective they can be and the meaningful change that uh, they may be able to achieve in the coming years. Of course, from um, the perspective of a human rights lawyer, it is important for these entities to, to take a human rights approach a rule of law based approach to their activities and to make sure that the processes that they run are participatory and sufficiently transparent and involve a diversity of stakeholders, including civil society, academia, subject matter experts, not only technology experts, but also international law and human rights law expertise. Absolutely. And I, and I think that's a really important note to end on. And it and frames a lot of the work that we tried to do at Tech Against Terrorism. So Christy and I just want to say thank you so much for joining us with such insightful comments. Um, so thank you. Uh, thank you very much. It was a pleasure joining you. 
Thank you for listening to the Tech Against Terrorism podcast and our episode on how we fight terrorism while protecting free speech. As part of our work with the global tech industry, we encourage all tech companies that we work with to commit to the Tech Against Terrorism pledge. The pledge is based on international documents around human rights and freedom of speech, such as the ICCPR and the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights. It covers principles like ensuring that companies protect freedom of speech on their platforms and offers appeal mechanisms for users. We also work with tech companies to support them in producing transparency reports. You can read more about the pledge and our work on transparency on our website at techagainstterrorism.org. We can also find out how you can sign up to our newsletter. Thank you to our guests Emma Lanzo and Dr. Christina Hushti Orban. We'll be back soon with another episode. In the meantime, find us on Twitter at Tech vs. Terrorism. Thank you.